0: the gospel of Luke uh, chapter 5 and verse 17 through verse 26 across I think all cultures and pretty well standard for all people is the truth that we all love stories Uh, we live in this story called life uh, called history And we tend to be interested in the stories of others, and we tend to be interested in the stories from history. And so as we come uh, to the Bible, and most particularly the Gospels, the Gospels are a series of stories that are put together particularly to reveal to us uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and all of His glory and all of that he would accomplish at the cross of Calvary uh, for us. And so uh, we come to this particular story uh, today, a story of Jesus intervening and healing a man who had been lame, had been unable to walk. And probably like many of you, you can remember this story from the earliest days of your childhood. I can remember the, the artwork that would decorate my primary uh, Sunday school classes at Pimville. Baptist Church back in the 60s and 70s, typically there would be some type of artistic rendering of of this particular uh, story, and so uh, we've heard it over and over again. I had one unique encounter with this story as an adult uh, uh, when I was at Beeson Divinity School and taking Greek, uh, that's something like going to hell but not quite, okay, but uh, Uh, taking my Greek class, and uh, as our professor told us the first day that we walked in, he gave us an English grammar test, and he told us very quickly, the reason you're going to struggle to learn Greek is you don't know English. And he was correct, and that's probably true of most of us. And so, in Greek class, one of the ways that they test you is they will give you a passage from the Bible uh, in Greek, with no help, just printed there on a blank page, and the assignment is to translate it. Now, if you're a smart boy like me, you've memorized a lot of Scripture. So if you pick out a few words along the line, you can cheat. Now, not that any cemetery, cemetery or seminary. I get it, I get it mixed up sometimes. But in seminary, I know you can't envision no preacher boys ever kind of fudging a little bit. But the rule is you don't translate from memory you translate from sight and this particular professor who had done his PhD in studies in Luke had taken this particular verse and where Jesus says take up your bed or your mat he substituted the word Greek word for stone the word is actually lithos now I called it except I translated it in the plural instead of the singular and so I lost a point for that But it was as as I used to say, and you've heard me talk about the New American Standard translation, it's very accurate, very much word for word translated straight from the Greek. And so, you know, like, all right, any of you guys that's got that New American Standard laying around, you know, this will catch you because I'm going to throw a word in there that doesn't fit. So if you're not reading it appropriately, you'll mess up. And so I did catch it, but I got got the number wrong. I translated it as plural because it ended in the Greek letter, Sigma, which is kind of like our S, and uh, unlike English, uh, that sigma does not necessarily indicate a plural. So my point is, familiar story. We've all interacted with it. And one of the stories that all three of the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they tell us about this encounter. And so let's look at it once again, and as I always want you to do as we seek, Karen, to rightly divide the word of truth, look at it freshly. Don't bring uh, to it uh, uh, the baggage that you've had before, but let's look at it through a, through a, a fresh and a bright and a clean uh, lens as we look at Jesus extending uh, to this crippled man divine forgiveness and divine healing. Again, verse 17, Luke 5. him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus and when he saw their faith he said man your sins are forgiven you and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying who is this who speaks blasphemies who can forgive sins but God alone when Jesus perceived their thoughts he answered them why do you question in your heart Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with all, saying, "We have seen extraordinary things here today." Let us pray, Father. Once again, thank you for your truth, your testimony, of yourself uh, given to us by your grace, given to us to reveal uh, your glory, again to call us to salvation. And so, Lord, I pray that today, that the Spirit that inspired uh, this text in the heart and mind of Luke so long ago would be at work in our midst today, be at work in me, giving me an ability to communicate and giving those, all of us who hear, uh, Lord, the ability to understand and ultimately apply your truth to each of our lives. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that sometimes happens to us as we read and as we study the Bible is we lose sight of the forest for the trees. Uh, We get very, very caught up in small sections, whether it be a a chapter, a verse, a sentence, whatever. And again, uh, the the Bible, to be rightly understood, requires some very close study sometimes. But sometimes it's good to kind of step back and as maybe you do does anybody remember what a newspaper is? I, I have a vague remembrance of a thing. They would throw it in your front yard and be rolled up. And you, Anybody? Okay. Anyway, there used to be this thing called a newspaper. And many times people would pick it up and they would scan the headlines, right? Well, sometimes it's a good thing to scan the headlines in your Bible. If you've got a good study Bible, uh, many times they will break down the Bible and to, to to various sections, not only chapters, but within the chapters, they may put a story heading. And if you kind of just thumb through your Bible sometimes, you can pick up some of the, 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 the broader spectrum of what the gospel writer or the writer of any particular book is wanting to communicate. Now, we said last week, by way of reminder, Luke it's very intentionally, very self-consciously. In fact, uh, in Tanzania in a couple of weeks, as I uh, do this, have this very daunting task of doing four sessions on church history, uh, there's nothing that he could have asked me to do that would be more intimidating to me than to do uh, sessions on, on church history. But uh, unlike Bo, I haven't lived most of it. But you know, if, if I was Bo, I could be, just tell him what I saw over the course of church history, but I'm not quite that old. But uh, at any rate, Luke was really the first church historian. He was very interested in the progress of the gospel from where he established a beginning, namely uh, back before Jesus was born and then through the birth of Jesus and then the initial phases of his ministry. And so he says to Theophilus, I'm going to write you an orderly account. So you may have clarity, so you may understand who Jesus is, what he came to accomplish. So in revealing who Jesus is, he wants us to know that he is uniquely the Son of God, the promised Son of David, all of the things. He's the fulfillment of all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. He's the Son of Man, Daniel 7, all of these things. And so to establish that, Luke and the other gospel writers present Jesus demonstrating great power and authority. Authority over disease. Authority over demons. Even in a few weeks we'll see that Jesus asserts that he has authority over the established religious traditions. And so he is very, Luke is very consciously writing and Jesus is very consciously giving testimony to the fact I am uniquely the Son of God and the Son of David who has come into this world to reveal the Heavenly Father for the sake of your salvation which will be accomplished in a once and for all, once for all time, atoning death at the cross of Calvary. And so you can sometimes get kind of bogged down in the stories as good as they are. Now let me give you a big word. Here's your big word for the day, okay? Pericope. Now, for years I thought it was periscope, but it's not periscope. It's without the S, pericope. If you're reading a good commentary, many times they'll say this particular pericope. All a pericope is is a literary unit, okay? And so this is a literary unit, this particular story of Jesus healing this lame man, is kind of self-contained. And in fact, uh, Miss Marie, Miss Monica, uh, you could do a literary analysis of this. It's got, it tells us about the setting. It tells us about the characters. It's got good plot development. It's got a denouement. It's got an epilogue. It's got all the things that are present in a good short story. Now, see, I'm an old high school English teacher. You got that for free. Didn't even have to pay for that this week, okay? But it's a great story. It's dramatic. I mean, there's a lot of action in it. And there's kind of a subplot going on that I'm going to point out to you as we go through it. All right, well, let's look at this. We see the setting and the characters. And, you know, I had, I, this is going to be the second time this week that I've had to admit an error. I don't know that that's ever happened in the course of my life, is making two mistakes it certainly, what? Where's my hush, y'all? Where's my hush, y'all paddle? I'd be glad to. But I misspoke. It's not an unknown city. Jesus is in Galilee, but we know where he was. You know how I know where he was? Now, one of the ways to study your Bible, if you have a study Bible, in your uh, cross-reference column, which sometimes is in your center column and sometimes is in the right-hand margin, you will see citations of various Bible verses that are related to the text. And usually you'll say, like, say verse 5 or something like that, and then it'll come and say Matthew chapter 9. Well, in the case of the Gospels, particularly what it's doing is giving you the parallel account. Remember I told you That all three of the synoptics, the seeing-together gospels, the synoptics tell us this particular story. And every one of them has a little bit of a nuance to it, okay? There's no collusion. Let's get together and tell the story. Every one of them told the story from their perspective. And Matthew tells us that Jesus went back to what? His own city. His own city. So where was he? He was in Nazareth. For whatever reason that um, Luke chose, he didn't think it was pertinent to his purpose in telling the story. But Jesus is in that early phase of ministry. He's in that northern region around the Sea of Galilee. It seems like maybe to keep the crowds at bay a bit, he would go back and forth to kind of leave the crowds behind. And we saw last week as that story ended, what did he do? He went to a desolate place because his fame was spreading. So, he's at a house that we don't don't know who owns the house, but he is there, and Jesus is teaching. Okay? You need to understand that Christianity, the Christian faith, is a word-centered, word-oriented religion. It's not about visuals. I mean, as cool as all of this stuff is, and I always enjoy VBS week and think it's kind of fun to stand up here amidst all of, all of the stuff, and, uh, you know, I, I like it. But but why do we get concerned about icons and paintings and all in the church? Because primarily Christianity is not oriented toward visuals. You're not to make any representations of God. It is communicated by word. And Jesus was word oriented why did he not get Matthew Brady, google it Matthew Brady, why did he not get Matthew Brady to make a picture of him so we could have a picture of Jesus wouldn't that be cool for every church to have a legitimate picture of Jesus instead of the blonde haired blue eyed Jesus that we see in churches, Okay, but Christianity, salvation is communicated through the proclaimed word The taught word. And so Jesus was a teacher of which we're fortunate to have much of what he taught. We don't have everything, but we have an awful lot of what Jesus taught. So while he was teaching, because of his reputation both as a teacher, uh, as a powerful communicator, but maybe most of all because of being a miracle worker, there were crowds coming to him, and evidently this house, while probably a larger house for that day, would still be small by our standards, and there was such a crowd that, again, people could not all see nor hear Jesus. We'll come back to that in a minute. But Jesus was teaching, and the religious leaders of the day identified here as the Pharisees, and again my ESV translation, the teachers of the law, or some of your translations may say scribes, okay? It may be that the Pharisees, who were the conservative party of the day, and the scribes may have been primarily Sadducees, which were the liberals of that day. The Sadducees were the societal upper crust, okay? They were the moneyed group, but the numbered group was the Pharisees. And you can always remember, this is something I learned in Sunday school a long time ago. How do you know the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee? How do you know the difference? What's the difference? How do you know which one's the liberals and the conservatives? And it's not that the liberals smile at each other or speak to each other in the liquor store. That's not the answer. Okay? Nobody knows. I've told you all this ten times. Sadducees are sad you see because they do not believe in the resurrection. Okay? They're sad, you see. I don't know what they do in the liquor store. I can't answer that one. That was supposed to be funny, folks. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, now, it's interesting, you know, some of Jesus' first disciples were associated with John the Baptist. Well, the religious leaders whom John very politely identified as what? You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? So these guys are now showing up to check out Jesus. And it seems as though there was kind of a delegation that's assigned, because Jesus was not the only one who popped up in the course of history claiming this or that. And so there seemed to be a bit of a messianic search committee that would be sent out. And so... Evidently, the synagogues around Galilee and then even down in the southern kingdom of Judea and specifically those centered on the temple uh, precincts, which would have been the Sadducees, they're coming out and they're checking Jesus out. And Luke tells us, and this is, I don't think I'm going to say much about it because it's an enigma to me. I'll be honest with you. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now one thing that we could say and and I'm one of the mysteries of the incarnation. Jesus was always fully God. Even in his conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary he was fully God. But something about his humiliation, his humbling himself and taking on the form of man. Some would say that he surrendered some of his independent use of his attributes of God. I don't know. When you get to heaven ask. Okay. But I would assume because Jesus and the Father was one, whenever Jesus had a notion that he wanted to heal, guess what? The power to heal was present in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So, just Luke notes for us that God was at work in his Son, Jesus Christ. Well, in verse 18, we're presented, and again, from a literary standpoint, the conflict, the the problem to be resolved. Okay? What's the problem? Well, some friends are bringing a man on a stretcher or a pallet or a something something that they was portable enough that they could transport him. And he is described as a man who was paralyzed. We don't know if he was paralyzed from birth. We don't know if he was paralyzed by sickness. We don't know if he was paralyzed by some type of traumatic injury. We don't know. We know that at the time that this story is written, He is an invalid who cannot walk around on his own. He is dependent upon others to be be moved from one place to the other. We don't know, and I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, if this man heard of Jesus and said, Guys, this is my last shot. Or if one or all of the friends had heard of Jesus and said, Let us take you to him. It doesn't matter. But he is coming to the one who has the power to heal. But not only is the man paralyzed because of the crowds that Jesus is now attracting, they can't get to him. Okay? Uh, they, they literally, and um, again, uh, if, you've ever ha- if you've ever looked at your home and you think, I've got a very large home, it's very suitable for what I need, Wait till you put a hospital bed or a wheelchair in your home. And you'll find out how tight everything is. And so to move a person on a pallet through a crowd is a challenge. And so they realize that they want to get the man before the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's no way to get him through the crowd. Okay? Uh, I don't know if in... Aramaic or Greek or whatever they were speaking, there was no word for, excuse me, or could you move your, well, you know, whatever. I I guess that wasn't possible. But what they did is they go up and typically the homes in Palestine, one story, flat roof. Luke tells us that the tiles on the roof were taken away uh, to waterproof. Uh, There would have been some type of rafter support system overlaid with some type of probably clay uh, tile. And so these men take him up the steps or maybe even a ladder, okay, uh, to get him up on the roof. And presumably they kneel down and they start tearing the roof off of that house. Now, my suspicion is the owner of the house got a little concerned when he heard all that Digging uh, up on his roof. And can you imagine when the sunlight comes streaming through and there's these four guys peering down and Jesus looks up and all of a sudden, uh, presumably again uh, using uh, ropes, uh, they're going to let the man and the pallet down so that it comes to rest in front of Jesus. And so these men. They were determined, to say the least, uh, to go and to bring the man, to get him on top of the house, to devise a way to get him through the roof. Now, again, to, to, to tear a six-foot by three-foot hole, is, that's pretty substantial, okay? And so they get him up there. They get him down. They get him to the place to meet the person who has the power heal and just again as an aside I'm not a big guy on allegory or anything but how much do we need to do what bring people to Jesus bring people to Jesus bring people to Jesus because he is the one who saves and so when Jesus sees the man he is moved with compassion I mentioned last week in the story about the leper Jesus was always moved by human need, we should as well. When we see people who, who are hurting, when we see things that, that has created intolerable circumstances, we should be moved by that. And Jesus was. The difference between Jesus and us is that Jesus' power was ultimately unlimited. Now, you can say back to me, at some level, guess what? Our power is unlimited by our access to Him through Jesus Christ, okay? Now, so, Jesus comes, and look at verse 20. When He saw their faith, again, a plural pronoun there, I don't know if it was the four men or the five men. When He saw their faith. Now, here's the question. If I look out and I say, show me your faith, Can you show me your faith? How did Jesus see? I mean, did he, because he could see all things, did he look in his heart and see see himself sitting on the throne of their heart? He saw their faith just like we see each other's faith by their works. By their works. That they came to the right place at the right time for the right reason. And so... They bring him. Jesus sees their faith, and what does he say? And Now, one way that I've taught this passage over the years as I've encountered it, what was his most pressing need? If you meet a person that is terminally ill with cancer or a heart problem or whatever it is, they're going to die. It is a pressing problem that they have a physical malady, right? And we want to be compassionate about those things and address it. And I'm thankful uh, for medicines and doctors and hospitals and all these good things. That's a very good thing that we have. As, As we go to Africa, we find people that are largely without benefit of those things, okay? Those of you that have ministered in Africa, you see things that would never happen in the States because they don't have access to basic hygiene and medical care. But, again, Jesus ultimately, is the healer, whether he chooses to use doctors or nurses or whatever. But the most pressing issue is not what might plague us physically or even emotionally. The most pressing issue for all people is the question or the issue, are your sins forgiven? And so I've always said that Jesus dealt with the most crucial issue first. Because it does not matter if you stand before God and you die in some kind of accident as a perfect physical specimen. If your sins are not forgiven, you have a problem that will resonate for all of eternity. Okay? I've always said that, and and probably some truth to that. But so many times, Jesus is presented as a sissified, non-controversial, I-just-want-to-get-along-with-everybody kind of guy. Kind of like me. You know, I just want to get along with everybody. But what did Jesus do? He knew who his audience was, and he knew why they were there. That Those religious leaders were there to check him out. And let me tell you something, he stuck it to them. He stuck it to them. What did he do? He knew if he announced or pronounced that this man's sins were forgiven, they would get it. Jesus, you, the carpenter's son, are taking the prerogatives that belong to God and God alone. And Jesus knew precisely what their accusation would be. And you know what he did? He brought it on. He could have dodged the bullet. He could, have done, he, could, he could have simply not said anything. He could have healed the man, pulled him off to the side, and said, listen, let me tell you about what I'm going to do on the cross at Calvary one day. He could have pulled him off into a Sunday school class there and said, we're going to have a private conversation. I'm going to talk to you about, about your most precious thing. It's a great thing that I can cure your paralysis, but let me tell you about the most important thing in your life. But let me tell you, he knew that those religious leaders were there, and he knew why they were there. And he said, I am going to bring this thing to a point at this time. And what was their immediate response? Which he knew was was coming. Look at verse 21. They started murmuring. Imagine that. Imagine that. Somebody murmuring. We don't know anybody like that, do we? They started, why? Who is this guy? That's in. That's the carpenter's boy. I mean, what could he know? And so they are thinking that this man has committed the terrible act of blasphemy. Now remember, these boys from Jerusalem, they know who Jesus is. Why do they know who Jesus is? Because he went down there and cleaned house previous to this. John tells us not only at the end of his ministry, but at the beginning of his ministry, he goes to Jerusalem and does what? He cleanses the temple. He costs them a buck. So they already had it in for him. So they began to inquire and question. And so Jesus does what? When he understands what's going on, he says, why do you question in your hearts? And I think, I think again, he's sticking it to them. As the perfect son of God, not sinning, Sometimes when I try to stick it to people, I've sinned, okay? But Jesus wasn't sinning. But he's saying, why don't you boys speak up and say what you're thinking? Why don't you say what you're thinking here? And so he says, let me tell you this. Just so you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And here's the thing. Maybe some of them believed. Some of them were converted. We don't know. Uh, we know Nicodemus, later converted. Maybe he was in this group. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he had already had some encounters with Jesus when he came to him by night, John 3. I don't know. But let me tell you something. What Jesus did raised the temperature upon their department in hell when he revealed his power. And they did what? What does, what does Paul say in Romans 18? God is revealing. Stuff. God incarnate is among them. God is demonstrating his power. What do they do? They suppress the knowledge of the truth in their unrighteousness. And again, it's one thing to, to look at the sun and say somebody had to put it up there and somebody had to make it and somebody had to make it all work. That's one type of revelation. But when the Son of God stands in your midst and they bring in a paralytic and he says, Not only are your sins forgiven, but I, let me tell you something else. You can get up and walk out of here. That is a testimony. That the one who forgave his sins has authority and power to do both. To do both. And so Jesus stuck it to them. He said, boys, here it is. Here I am. This is who I am. You better deal with it. And again, I know that sounds very haughty, and that's not probably the way we need to present Jesus and evangelize people, but there is a reality. That Jesus Christ commands, notice my word there, commands all men and all women and all people in all places at all times to repent upon the hearing of the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus leaves no doubt. Leaves no doubt. Now, and here's the thing about the presentation of evidence. I've talked to you many times about apologetics. Presenting logical reasons that we should believe in Jesus, essentially, okay? And there are plenty of logical reasons. But here's the thing we've always got to remember. If God, through the work of His Holy Spirit, does not go before us, no matter how slam dunk the evidence is, people will not believe. It is not the power of the miracle that brings conversion. It's the power of the Word and the Spirit. Always has, always will be. We do not need a miracle here at North Clay Baptist Church to convert people. We need word and spirit. That's the way God has always worked to save his people. And in fact, I would dare say that maybe just as many people were condemned in the presence of miracles as were converted in the presence of miracles. Because this was a great thing, but when Jesus told Lazarus to come out of that tomb, the religious leaders were there too John 11 and what did they say we got to get rid of this boy because he's trouble so again spirit of God must work so their hard hearts denied and suppressed the obvious testimony and so what happened well guess what the guy got up and walked away and he went away praising God praising God because Jesus had healed him and Jesus had forgiven his sins and he had a real life-changing encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I've told you so many times, I can't raise the dead. I cannot heal the lame. But I can present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, folks, every time we hear the testimony of the greatness of the grace of God, we ought to walk away glorifying God. We ought to be in awe that he saved a sinner like me, like me. I can't believe God saved me. Jesus entered in the world to die on the cross for me. Yeah. And you ought to think the same thing about yourself. And so, the man was healed, the man was forgiven, and he walked away whole from his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the crowds in verse 26, they were amazed and they go away praising God because of the extraordinary things the abnormal thing, the supernatural thing that they had seen. And so, as we said last week, let me kind of close with a very, very quick word. most frustrating thing that you do as a pastor is stand behind, beside hospital beds and bedsides and gravesides. You always want to fix it. And, and you, know, I, you know, about this time last year, I got to snorting, snorting and ripping and hooping and hollering about the church down the road. They had their miracle healing campaign. Had You know, we've got the Butt God sign out there. They had their miracle healing campaign with Mr. and Ms. Healer on the thing. I was hot. Go down to Tyner's pharmacy and ask Randy about me talking about that. Yeah. Dale was in the last few weeks of her life. I mean, I was fit to be tied. Just think, if, if legitimately, you know what? Now, I, I don't know how many of you go out. will go out this week and tell somebody about Jesus. I hope all of you do. But I dare say, if we brought somebody that was a cripple here to the front today, I said, get up out of that wheelchair and walk out of here. Roll that thing out for yourself. Y'all go tell folks about it. And guess what? They would be lined up. I told Ellen this morning I parked in front of the dumpster. You know, that's the executive parking place right in front of the dumpster. Seems appropriate, doesn't it? And so I I back in in front of the dumpster. There'd be somebody in the executive parking place next week. I'd I'd have to park down there next to the sign. And so why doesn't God choose to continue to raise up the miraculous and healers? And I and I do not believe it necessarily belongs to this. God can do anything He wants, anytime He wants. You pray. You call me, tell you me you're sick. I don't get my stethoscope and my hypodermic needles out. I go to my knees and I pray for you. That's all I've got. You don't want me sticking you with sharp objects. No. But I'll pray for you. And I believe God can do all things, and God has never changed. But for whatever reason, within God's own wisdom, the God who, beyond the understanding of this world, crucified His Son on a cross at Calvary for our forgiveness, chose not to do it another way. He has chosen, for the most part, in our day, in our time, in our context, when they tell you you're sick, you're sick. For the most part. I'm not saying that God never heals. I believe He does. I believe He I've had a few accounts over the years. Yeah. Yeah. But for the most part, it runs its course. We live in a, God has ordained a fallen world which sickness and death are universally a part of our existence. And God chooses to be glorified as we live with the realities of a fallen world. But having heard the testimony of God's grace and His glory and His mercy and His power, we still ought to be in awe. You know, a couple of my favorite contemporary songs, and I'm not real big a lot of times. I don't even know who the bands are. I know Mercy Me and uh, I can't even remember the name of the other popular group. But one of them did Even If, Even If You Don't. One of them did Praise You in the Storm. You know, that seems to be more the norm for the Christian experience. God, even if you don't. Even if you don't do what I would really desire that you do, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to love you. Okay. Even in the midst of the storm. And if we think about it for the most part, for most of us, we may not always feel it from the moment you're conceived to the moment we stand beside you at the graveside. You're in the storm. Life tends to be a storm. But let me tell you, he is still the one who can all do all things. He is the one that never leaves or forsakes. And he is the one that while he may choose in this life to not reverse our physical decline, he is the one that always, every single time, forgives the sins of those of every single one who comes to him in repentance and in faith. He tells them, your sins are forgiven. Folks, no matter how much physical healing might go on, Still, the more pressing issue is what? That your sins be forgiven. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for the testimony to your son, for the reality of his power, a reality that is still available and still at work in our world. You do not always do what we want you to do, but you always do what you would will to be done. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be submissive to both your stated will and your secret will, that we would live in accordance with what uh, you have ordained for our lives, that we would never doubt your goodness, even in a world that's filled with hurt. And, God, that we would live with an unrestrained joy of the absolute certainty that you have pronounced over us through our faith in your Son that, yes, our sin are forgiven. Lord, I pray that you would bless us uh, through the hearing of your word and apply it to each of our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.